0: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
1: When I'm talking to patients, you have to meet them where they are. It's really just having fact-sharing conversation, respecting their choices and opinions, even though it can be very difficult for me sometimes, and taking care of people that gets me further than judgment and trying to get them to where I want them to be because it's not about that. And so when I do open the door and I am more understanding, folks will come back with more questions and with different things that they've heard. And oftentimes they do get to where I hope they get to, which is doing the best thing that's for them and their health and their family's health. Hi, my name is Dr. Babak Kumar and I'm a modern minority.
2: Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about all of you, for all of us.
3: On today's show, we're talking to Dr. Babak Kumar, a family physician who serves as medical director for primary trans care at Planned Parenthood Gulf Coast, based in Houston. You know, we've really come to love talking to healthcare professionals on this podcast. While we definitely had a good chat with Dr. Kumar about COVID prevention, we also spent a bit of time talking to him about his field of specialty. As the Medical Director for Primary and Trans Care at Planned Parenthood Gulf Coast based in Houston, Dr. Bavik has been an abortion provider in his home state of Texas since 2015. He completed med school at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center, and he did his residency and fellowship in the Bronx, New York, and he also did his master's in public health at Columbia University. Now, since the overturn of Roe v.ersus Wade, there's been an increased amount of chaos and confusion across the country. Communities of color, you know, have always had difficulty accessing abortion, whether it's due to abortion stigma, medical disinformation, language barriers, immigration status, or even racism in the healthcare system. And Roe's overturn has hit minority communities the hardest.
2: Yeah, it was really helpful to have a candid conversation with Dr. Bavic on his experience becoming an abortion provider and how he's been working with patients, especially with immigrants and communities of color. There's a lot of disinformation out there, and frankly, stigmas in our own communities that embolden anti-abortion views. And we wanted to unpack this live with someone who's on the ground, who is really one of us, right, from similar backgrounds, and also providing this care and, and helping those communities to navigate this landscape. Yeah, and
3: I think something I just genuinely appreciated about the conversation is his thoughtful demeanor. It's super easy for us to kind of espouse our points of view directly to someone that we might not agree with. But as a healthcare provider, his job is to get the best information and the best care to his patients, and so much of that is in establishing or reestablishing trust. And I, and I think Dr. Bavic, even in the way he answers his questions, he does that artfully by keeping an open door, right? Uh, letting people know that they can trust him for answers to questions that they're facing. So. We think you're really going to enjoy this chat with our new friend, Dr. Bhavik Kumar. Dr. Kumar, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah,
1: thanks for having me.
3: Can we call you Bhavik?
1: Yep, of course.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Bhavik, maybe. I guess what a lot of folks really want to know is uh, where are you from?
1: Yeah, you know, usually I hate that question but here it feels comfortable and safe, um, <laughs> given who I'm talking to. So my parents are from India. Their parents are from India. Their parents are also from India. And I think it goes back as many generations as we are aware of. And we're from a state in Northwest uh, India called Gujarat. So we are Gujarati. We marry within our you know <laughs> culture for very uh, many generations. And that's who we are. So all of our cousins, my parents, everyone is Patel. Um, and I mentioned that just because a lot of folks are familiar with Patels and the culture that comes with Patels. Yeah, well, Kumars are kings, right? Um, yeah, So, but, you know, it's interesting. My parents gave me a different last name from everyone else because it's generic. And so sometimes with Kumar, <laughs> you don't know if you're South Indian or you're North Indian. And there's just there's so much racism in London where we grew up at the time that they just gave me a generic different last name. Which, um, for me, built a lot of character because, of course, you know, kids are like, "Why is your name different from your parents?" And my sister <laughs> would tease me that um, I was adopted for the first, like, good Aww. half of my life. And so, again, it built a lot of character, but it wasn't a pleasant experience.
3: You know, the one thing I think we might have in common is I don't I actually don't know if this is true anymore, especially because I know my sister, who's a doctor, listens to this podcast. <laughs> I think she had me convinced I was adopted because I didn't like Indian <laughs> food growing up. So, yeah, they could be so mean. Was she older or younger? Older. She's yeah, older. Same.
2: Yeah. And we spoke to her a few weeks ago and Raman says she's mean, but I really enjoyed hearing all the stories about how she would tease him. And <laughs> oh,
3: see, that's, that's a podca- podcast. Podcast <laughs> guests are super nice, right? Like, right.
2: Have you ever been asked a different question or do, have you ever answered that question differently? Like, have you ever said, I grew up in London or I yeah. am from this other place?
1: You know, I think when I was younger, I would often assume what the person meant. They're looking at me and they want to put me in a box. And so I'd say, oh, I'm Indian and I'd respond pretty quickly. But of course I felt pretty uncomfortable with that question because it's like, it's very othering, right? It's like, yeah, I've barely walked in the room and you're already asking me where you're from. And it's like, and, and then sometimes it would be followed up with, oh, your English is so good or, so, or something like that. And now, given that I've been to school and I know a lot more about, you know, racism and just I have different vocabulary and I can respond with things. and so I ask them where they're from even if they you know look like they're from here right
3: and you compliment them on your on their English right? exactly and oh, so no. and
1: and I'm very okay with their awkwardness and you know discomfort because that's the whole point. it's it's very uncomfortable to ask that question and you know if I feel somewhat attacked i'm I'm happy to sort of give that back and 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 move along yeah uh, from there, which is different from what I used to do.
2: It's great. Where did you grow up?
1: So um, like I mentioned, I grew up in London for the first nine years of my life. My parents were there for like 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. And then we moved from London to Jackson, Mississippi for one year because my uncle lived there. So that's where we settled when we first came to the U.S. And then we moved to a small East Texas town called Corsicana, which for a long time, nobody knew what it was. And now because of cheer, a lot of people have some reference <laughs> point because Navarro <laughs> College is in Corsicana. It got Exactly. Yeah. And so my formative years were in Corsicana, Texas.
2: So I have to say this though, you don't have an accent, meaning you I don't know. have a British accent.
1: I don't have a British <laughs> accent. Yeah. So I also learned that if you move before puberty, you adopt the, you know, accent and the way of talking of like wherever you're moving to, but if you move after puberty, whatever accent or the way of talking you have usually sticks. And so that's why a lot of older people when they move their accent doesn't really get better with time. Like, my parents still have their Indian accent.
3: Yeah, yeah. Right. And I
1: kind of have what I think is an American accent, but it's not British for sure.
3: Well, the thing I get, because one of my fun facts is I'm from Alabama, mm-hmm. and I, it's not that I'm suppressing my Southern accent, it, it just stopped existing mm-hmm. so around puberty. And I. so I guess the question is, do you do you ever get asked, like, Wow, you know, you spent time in Mississippi. You were raised in Texas, especially you know when you were studying in New York. Yeah, did did you ever get questions about the lack of a Southern accent?
1: Yeah, I did, and and it only came from folks when I was in New York because I guess <laughs> besides you know Texas and and Mississippi, that's the only time I, I lived outside of the South, and so folks were like, "Whoa, you're from Texas? Where's your Texas accent?" And you know, I, some folks would even ask like, you know, are there horses? Like, are there cowboys? And, this was in the 2000s, which was really surprising and shocking to me. I'm like, no, it's like it's 2000 something. Like there's there are horses and there are cowboys, but we're not all riding around on horses and, and you know going to school on in a horse and buggy.
2: Do you own a pair of boots, though?
1: I do. You have to. Yep. of course. Yeah, and of they course. hand them to
3: you like, yeah. when you arrive
2: for yeah. sure. What did you want to be when you grew up?
1: So when I was little, I remember in elementary school in London and. I was stuck between two career choices. One was a ballerina and one was a postman because I loved when the mail would come. Nice. And it was exciting. So I was like one of the two. Um, Ballerina because they wore pink and um, postman because they got to deliver packages. And I thought that was exciting.
3: I think the modern Amazon era has my daughter like way
1: too excited about packages. (laughs) It's it's fun. It's the highlight of my day sometimes.
2: It's like getting presents every Uh day.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that you paid for though.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that you paid for—that's true. You gotta treat yourself,
1: you know. Yeah. So. <laughs> Self care. What, what
3: did mom and dad want you to be?
1: It was always the typical thing: either a doctor or a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And if we well, had to settle for son. engineer, yeah, if you had to settle for an engineer, we'll take that. But that those were the top three, right?
2: Our parents would want to trade us for you any day. <laughs> Just so you know, because Rehman and I did not become doctors.
1: Yeah.
3: <laughs> we have doctors in our lives. So.
2: We do. Mm-hmm. Like, we do. And we have a new doctor friend who's you now, but...
3: <laughs> yes, exactly. I don't know. That might be too presumptuous ahead of the end <laughs> of this conversation. Right.
2: So when you when you decided to get into medicine then, well, you know, there's a long way between the postman, a ballerina, and a doctor, right? Yes. So tell us a little bit about that trajectory and how you ended up practicing medicine.
1: Yeah. There was a lot that happened in between. So... You know, I, I mentioned we moved from London to Mississippi, and we were undocumented at that time. We weren't doing well in London financially. We had a little shop where we sold like, you know, bread and um, frozen goods, just like a little convenience store, just a corner shop that you see anywhere in London. And so we moved, we were undocumented, and then we moved to Texas, and we're still undocumented for about 11 years. And so, you know, my parents had these dreams of, you know, you've got to become a doctor, we have got to do well. and I did well in school. I think being undocumented, I was also gay, which I didn't know what that was at the time, right? It just felt like something was different. So I put my head in my books and, you know, studied hard and kept quiet. Didn't want to be found out by anybody as far as being gay as well as being undocumented. And so (laughs) it worked in my favor in that I studied really hard and do really well in school And so that was sort of like, okay, well, if all of this is going on, if I become a doctor, maybe it will balance the gay thing out a little bit. And, you know, as a child, I was just so scared and not sure how my parents would respond. Mm -hmm. And if they kicked me out and, and I was on my own, I had to support myself. And so this was like my way of like making sure I was okay. It's sort of, I guess it was survival. It's like, you've got to do well in school and make sure you can support yourself. And I went into medicine, which was. Very, you know, good for my parents to hear, and they were very delighted that I that I did
2: that. When did you come out to them? I started to come
1: out in college to a lot of folks, and then to my okay. parents, I think I was probably oh maybe in like medical school, so they were the last folks to find out. So maybe like two thousand nine, ten, somewhere in there.
2: Yeah. So you were already in school. You're like, mom and dad, I'm killing it. I'm crushing it. I'm the perfect son. And I'm,
1: I'm surviving is what I'm I surviving. would say. <laughs> I got into medical school and I'm making it so far is how I'd phrase right. it.
2: <laughs> right.
3: Well, I, I've got to ask, I have to ask, like, within our communities more broadly, right? It's being gay, I, and I don't want to speak for any one of our respective parents, right? Everyone has their own individual views on these things, but our community is not as open-minded to this than the West. So what was kind of that reaction? Because you know, it, for me, it was, and I'm straight, but it was, you know, watching The Fresh Prince of Bel Air. My parents blamed everything on that, on Western culture. Mm-hmm. So there was so much blame placed on the, the influence of Western culture. And was there any any piece of that that kind of came out, or, or I assume they became supportive over time? But but what was that journey with them?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's so interesting because so many folks will ask, "When did you come out?" or or sort yeah. of like have a coming out story. And I think. For folks in the West, like you're exactly right. There's a, there's a story. I came out and I went on this journey. And then, you know, my parents are either supportive or not. And for me, it's been very different. And I hear this from other folks that are, you know, um, especially Indian folks that I've, that I've talked to or South Asian folks that I've talked to about this, where it's not always linear. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're supportive and sometimes all of a sudden they're questioning things they have no concept of what it means or had no concept of what it means to be gay. And so originally they thought something was anatomically wrong with me. And then they would say things like, you know, when you were little, everything looked fine or, or wow. something like that. So wow. it was a lot of explaining that you know, this is what it means. And then, you know, they have questions or they hear other things. And so it's a, a constant sort of teaching and learning. And can you have kids? And well, what if you are gay, but then you marry a woman? And, you know, it's just really starting from ground zero and, and going up. And so it's a journey. I think a lot of my values I've gotten from my parents. And so they trust me, they love me, they don't always get it, but they know mm-hmm. they have the best intentions and they want the best for me. And I think that's what they center and, and and that's how they move forward. So it it looks very, very different, but you know, I couldn't have asked for a better response from them.
3: Yeah. Cause it's the, the cultural context isn't as there but the one thing that is there that I, you know, especially in immigrant communities is you want what's best for your child. That's where it's right. coming from. Yeah. Exactly. And But you're working with what you know. You're working with what you understand.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, one of the, the downsides, and I think, again, this comes from a lot of immigrant communities where they're okay with it, but don't tell anyone. Yeah. Don't yeah. talk about yeah. it. Don't yeah. open it up, right? Let's keep this private, which I've definitely rejected and said, no, no, no. There's a lot of other folks like me mm-hmm. and generations behind me are going to be, you know, I don't want them to fight the same fight that I've had to fight. And so it's important for me to be out. I don't do it in front of their face or, you know, (laughs) uh, sort of walk in in a rainbow suit whenever somebody's coming over to visit. But, (laughs) you know, there's a time and a place and I'm not going to be quiet about
2: it. Yeah. Have you brought anybody home yet for them to meet? I have, yeah, I bought yeah. two. Wait, do folks. they
3: have to be Indian? And do they have to be Gujarati? <laughs> <laughs> they
1: would, they would prefer that they be Indian, um, but I some bought, things never change. Exactly. Right? I brought two people home, and it didn't work out. And oh. um, yeah, but they were they were open to it, which you know, again, it's baby steps.
2: Right, I love that. So we're just going to cut to the chase because I was really excited to be talking to you. I think you are you're working in a space right now that's very relevant. You're in Houston, Texas. You are providing many different kinds of care as a primary care person, and the topic of abortion right now is on the tip of everybody's tongues, and so many different things are happening politically. What's going on from what you see on the ground in Texas?
1: Yeah, so I've been providing abortion care in Texas for a little over seven and a half years now, and this is my home. Yeah. When we look at abortion access throughout the country, of course, Roe has been overturned. It was law of our country for about 49 years. Um, and the Supreme Court has overturned uh, Roe v. Wade. And so now abortion is accessible in some states and not accessible in others like Texas. And so many states have no exception for rape or incest, uh, meaning you cannot access abortion in a state like Texas unless it's an emergency The state doesn't really define that. And so many people are having to scramble and travel to another state to get basic health care. And also, it's important to note that many people don't have the means to travel and instead are being forced to carry these pregnancies to term. Right. So it's an evolving landscape. Things are changing. Laws are changing. Courts are making decisions. But things look very different in the last few months than they have for 49 years.
2: Yeah. I live in California where we've just seen a big influx of people traveling into the state to be able to access the same kind of care. And it's such an interesting time, right? Because like as a woman who I've had my own children, but have also in my twenties have had abortions as well. I, I see both sides of both the I don't really understand the political side, I'll be honest, but Mm -hmm. I I do understand both sides of kind of the ethical or the moral or whatever, right? The family planning belief systems. And it's a really unfortunate time, I think, right now because it is, to me, it's limiting access to people who really want it. And I forgot the name of the senator, but he was talking about how, um, especially when it comes to late-term abortions. If a woman has to make that choice in her third trimester, you have to assume that that's not going to be an easy choice, right? Like she's already planned to have this child in many, many ways. And that usually is a choice of life and death. Sometimes it might be, there might be a number of reasons, but it's never an easy choice, I would think. And I think scenarios like that are not highlighted enough because it's easy to say this, you know, this isn't right or, it's easy to say that you know because of religious reasons or anything else right you're you're taking away an unborn child's life but i think the flip side of it is that the decision is never an easy choice
1: yeah absolutely and you know i mean i've i've had conversations with thousands of people that have needed to end their pregnancies and what i'm thankful for in this moment is that many people are now thinking more about abortion asking questions even questioning what they thought was true or what they've been told because, you know, th- they haven't really had those conversations. They really haven't questioned the information that they're getting. And we can see in the political landscape things playing out and there's so much rhetoric around later term abortions, which, you know, are very important for the people that need to access them. I remember facts though, like, When Roe was law of the land, 92% of abortions happened in the first trimester. Most abortions happen very early Mm -hmm. in pregnancy. Right. Only 1% of abortions happen after 21 weeks. And just like you said, they tend to be because there's something wrong with the health of the mother or health of the pregnancy. And so those decisions are not easy and, and they're usually rooted in something that's going wrong with a wanted pregnancy. And it's very, very rare that they happen that late in pregnancy. Right. The other thing you mentioned is just there's complexity in some of these decisions and what you would do or what I would want for my sister or what my friend would do is very, very different. And and people should respect other people's decisions based on what's best for them, their lives, their families, oftentimes the kids they already have at home. And we shouldn't be making decisions that force people to stay pregnant, especially when folks have been pregnant before and they know what that's like. It has health consequences. Raising a child and everything that goes into that is complex and different for each person. And When they don't have the things that they need to raise their children in the way that they think it's best, they should be able to make the decisions that are best for them and their families.
2: Yeah.
3: I want to touch on something you said earlier that, or or something I almost inferred from something you said, that a lot of people are, we don't have these conversations enough, Mm -hmm. right? And as a result of these conversations either being private or taboo, especially in some communities, this is kind of where medical disinformation and stigmas start to root up. Have you noticed in your care, I I know you care for people of all communities, but within minority communities, how do you see kind of the proliferation of disinformation or cultural stigmas kind of play into decision making?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It it certainly shows up in in so many different ways. And Living in Houston, which is such a diverse city, I get to take care of so many different folks from different, you know, ethnic backgrounds and different countries, different languages. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so it's a very rich experience. And I think there's so much cultural disinformation, especially around abortion, because people have had abortion since the beginning of mankind, right? This is not a new yeah. concept. And so folks mm-hmm. have heard things. Folks have heard things from their grandmothers and their moms and their sisters about abortion. Some of these things have been passed down because folks have needed to access this care you know, in in places that are not the US and Mm -hmm. sometimes in unsafe places. and, And there are different remedies out there that folks have tried or heard about. And then there's just outright disinformation, right? Where they've looked something up on the internet and it's inaccurate.
3: Well, are you trying to tell me everything on the internet is not true? Uh,
1: it is one. not true. <laughs> and I would encourage everyone who has, whether it's about abortion or any other healthcare thing, please do not Google your symptoms and diagnose Dr. yourself. Dr. Google <laughs>
3: is not your friend. And
1: do yeah. not freak out because that you're you're doing more harm to yourself than, than good. But yeah, folks come in with all kinds of things that they've Googled. Or unfortunately, there are also a number of crisis pregnancy centers, fake clinics that are out there, and they've visited these places. And and received more disinformation about whether it's the types of instruments we use or the long-term health consequences, which are very rare and uncommon with abortion, or, you know, a number of other things that can come up. And we spend some time going through that information and making sure they have the facts and, and feel more comfortable before they move forward in the process.
3: So, I, I mean, the other question I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, you're providing abortion care in Texas. Not just the how, because it's clear you're still working in doing the work you do within Planned Parenthood, but it's just like, how are you threading that needle right now? Yeah, it it
1: just seems like a very difficult work environment, I guess is what I would say. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly complex. I mean, so I'll be clear and say that since the Dobbs decision back in June, we haven't provided any actual abortion care at our Planned Parenthood affiliate in Texas because it's illegal. But we do see people uh, for a dating ultrasound, so they know how far along they are. We can mm-hmm. confirm that the pregnancy is in the uterus, where it's supposed to be. Um, we can see them for any kind of pregnancy complication, if they, especially if they're having a miscarriage or an early pregnancy loss, we can manage that. And then we can also see folks who have had an abortion and need some kind of follow-up care. Usually, it's just to confirm that they're no longer pregnant, or perhaps they need access to contraception, and we can help with that. And then we are still providing all the other services at our Planned Parenthood affiliate in Texas that we've provided since before the Dobbs decision, including access to contraception, STI testing and treatment, breast and cervical cancer screenings. We provide primary care. So Mm -hmm. if you have a cold or need management of your high blood pressure or diabetes, we can do that. And then we also provide trans care. So all of those services are still available. And there's been more of a demand given the evolving landscape around abortion access. What do you mean there's been more demand? So, you know, because abortion is no no longer accessible in Texas and in in a number of other states, folks are considering their options for contraception and Um. uh, fertility in different ways. And so, you know, people are thinking, if I can't get an abortion, if I were to become pregnant, I really want to make sure I'm doing everything I can to prevent that pregnancy.
3: Are you seeing more men jumping into the conversation?
1: Yeah, certainly. Yeah, we we're seeing more partners, and then we also provide vasectomy services, and so we've seen an increase in demand for that uh, care as well.
2: Interesting. And so, if someone is in Houston and and looking to still have an abortion, even though it is illegal in the state, how are you managing or supporting that that decision for them? Like, how are you? What types of resources are you providing? Mm -hmm. And are you able to their options? And yeah, are you even able to? refer them to out-of-state? Like, how does that work?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the legal landscape is evolving. And some folks have, and there's a number of abortion bans in Texas. There's like three of them. One of them was in for, started to be enforced September of last year, so 2021. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we, at that time, um, created a patient navigation program because so many people didn't qualify for an abortion, which was banned after about six weeks or so at that time. And so we've been helping thousands of people get out of state for over a year now. And so many times when people come to us, they'll say things like, I never thought I would need an abortion. I never thought I would be here. And they're learning about all of these laws and restrictions and absurd things that they have to do in order to get the care that they need all at once. And they don't know where to go. And again, like we talked about, the internet is full of disinformation and it can be confusing, Mm -hmm, right? So we get calls from folks and if they need to come in person, they can. They can have an ultrasound or we can talk to them on the phone. Um, But we can help them figure out where they can go, what makes the most sense for them. Many people will also say, I've never left my town or my county or even the state. I've never been on a plane before. So we will talk about what ID requirements are needed and how much a plane ticket costs and what website you go to to find an airline ticket. It costs a lot of money, whether you're going on a plane or in a car. People are oftentimes driving because they already have kids. And so they have to put the kids in the car and and drive to where they need to go. Mm -hmm. And so we help them as much or as little as they need. Some people got it, they don't need our help and and they can figure it out and and they're good. And then some people need a lot of help throughout the entire process, as well as when they come back. Um, If they have questions, if they have concerns, we help them through all of that. And we also provide financial support for folks if they need a gas card or money for food whenever they're traveling mm-hmm. um, or money for lodging because the number one reason we hear from people that they need an abortion is financial and the number one barrier to accessing abortion care is also financial. So that's a huge piece of the puzzle as well.
3: I, I have to ask this question as well because prior to the the overturning of Roe, one of the laws that kind of triggered all of this was the legal side of it, right? People who are providing assistance have liability. So how do you thread the needle of assistance? Is assistance is the the legal line kind of information versus direct support?
1: Yeah. And, you know, I'm I'm very happy to be a physician and not a lawyer. Unfortunately, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, doing this work in Texas, I've had to learn a lot about yeah. law and uh, what's legal and what's not legal. But the advice of our legal counsel and attorneys has been that we can provide this information. Yeah. And you know, I think oftentimes in this work, you get in these situations that, again, are not medicine. We know what to do when it comes to medicine and how to take care of our patients, right? right. But right. there's sort of this murky legal space and attorneys and lawyers will tell you that there's risk or no risk or this much risk or, or give right. you suggestions. Right. But when it comes down to making those final decisions that are your own, it can be confusing and scary, right? Because you're looking at life in jail or lawsuits or all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But I think in those moments, what I've learned is it's always important to lead with your values, to do what you signed up to do and to do right by the people that are depending on you. And so I wish I could provide abortion care. That is absolutely illegal in Texas and very clear. And the lawyers are are very clear about uh, that fact. And so we can't provide that care. So what's the next best thing? And so if we can provide information, if we can be there before after, answer questions, soften the experience as much as possible, then that's what our values tell us. And so that's what we do. We show up, we answer questions, and we think about what what more can we do? What are patients experience, And we ask them when they come back, what else can we help them with? What would have made the experience different that we can still provide or do or answer or see if somebody out there can help us with? And so that's what we're constantly doing because people will always need access to abortion and if we can't provide it what's the next best thing
2: what's been the impact on you as a provider like i'm i'm making an assumption but i can imagine it must be challenging to also have to deal with the patients responses or or just the devastation right of 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 the limitations of where you are like you can you're doing as much as you can and it sounds like you guys are doing amazing things but also as a care provider i'm sure you you wish you could Literally, bring it full circle, and how's that? How's that impacted you and 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 your approach to the practice?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's one of the hardest things I've ever experienced. Um, yeah, and it's also hard to really communicate what it's like because we, as care providers, whether it's me as the physician or the nurses that I work with or our surgical techs, anybody, or even the folks answering the phones, we mm-hmm. hear directly from people. We see them; they're sitting in front of us, right? Yeah. They're a real person with a name. They're telling us their story. They're telling us why they can't travel and asking us for help. And of course, we have the skills, we have the knowledge, we have the ability. We just legally can't do it. And so it is mm-hmm. draining and exhausting and depleting morally and ethically to to have to do that over and over again. I think when you've done this work for so long, the way I cope, and I think many of my colleagues cope with it, is that, you know, again, going back to well, what's next, what can we do, and thinking about the people we are able to help The folks that we're not able to help, we think about them. Those are the folks that, you know, keep us up at night, that we think about before we go to bed, when we wake up in the morning, that we wonder if somebody's heard from, that we come back the next day and say, hey, did you hear from that person? And we still think about them. But I think what has to, you know, what we have to remind ourselves of is that in order to sustain ourselves, in order to keep going, in order to help the next person that's going to come in our doors, we have to recenter, focus on what we can do and continue to motivate each other to, to keep going. There are times I think when I and, and others have needed just a break and a, a reset because it becomes too much. There's too much pain, there's too much hurt, there's too much sadness. Mm-hmm. And we support each other when we need time away. So all of those things are important. But yeah, th- there's tough moments, but you know, we keep going and I personally also have hope that we're going to get back to a better place where people do have the right to access the healthcare that they need. And and it may take some time, but there's nothing good that's going to come out of this. And it's just going to take time until people recognize that and begin to vote on that and act on that and have their voices heard.
3: And now a word from our sponsor, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.
2: You know, Ramin, we love all of our sponsors equally, but we love some of them more equally.
3: Why is that, Sharon?
2: Well, Roman, what better message than the entire team at Modern Minorities reminding you, our listeners?
3: I think you mean our super sophisticated, ever charming, and always good looking listeners.
2: But of course, what better message than to remind you to make time for your health so you don't lose time for the things you love?
3: That's right. And there's no better way to do that than getting your updated COVID vaccine.
2: An updated COVID vaccine restores protection that has decreased over time, including protection against severe illness, hospitalization, and the worst effects of COVID.
3: If your last COVID vaccine or booster was before September 2022, it's time for an updated vaccine.
2: You know, now that the holidays are over, we're back to work and back to play. So we've got to protect ourselves as well as our friends and family.
3: Yeah, I mean, I've got to go see all my spring superhero movies, no matter how good or bad
2: they are. Oh, those are pretty important.
3: And all my nerdy journalist talks at the local library?
2: Uh, sure.
3: What about stand-up comedy shows?
2: Yeah, those are key. (laughs) Laughter is the best medicine. I mean, after vaccines. And you know what else having your latest COVID vaccines makes safe and possible? What's that? How about fancy dinner date nights with your partner when the kids are home with a babysitter?
3: Does the babysitter also have their updated
2: vaccine? Of course they do. Duh well then yeah those date nights are totally
3: clutch and would not be possible if it weren't for all of us having our updated vaccines
2: and don't forget the ever important trips to visit grandparents uncles and aunties so that you can enjoy home-cooked mom dishes that you don't have to cook
3: that's right sharon Not cooking a home-cooked meal at home is key, and made possible when we all have our updated COVID vaccines.
2: COVID is still serious stuff, so we've all got to do everything we can to keep ourselves and the people we love safe.
3: Find updated COVID vaccines at vaccines.gov.
2: We can do this.
3: Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, who we are big fans of.
2: And now, back to our show.
3: I want to shift gears a little bit, and we can come back to this topic of your, your day job, but. This isn't the first crisis that people in your profession have had to navigate. Obviously, this one has unfortunately been more legal and political in nature. But, you know, in the last couple of years, I heard there was a pandemic. Right? Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, everything on the Internet is true. And everyone <laughs> made the right choices and the right decisions. And everything's been just going along swimmingly. <laughs> yeah. What has been your on-the-ground experience and and I have to ask, in, in a state like Texas, you know, I have family in Alabama, I have family in Florida, and mm-hmm. it's a very different experience in different regions of the country. But what has been your experience observing people's response beyond the medical community, but your unique vantage point in the medical community, in a big city like Houston, in a big state like Texas? How how would you grade kind of people's response and receptivity to kind of the, the COVID prevention measures?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well... I mean, it's been a couple of years now, and so much has transpired. There's been sort of a journey up and down. I think generally in Texas, there's been a lot of resistance to science and evidence and facts. That's not everybody. And I think in the cities, we fare a little bit better than the more rural parts of the state. But in many ways, the same sort of disinformation and misrepresenting the facts and the science that we see with abortion care is what we saw with COVID vaccines. And Mm -hmm. it was the same sort of campaign. It was repeating lies really over and over again until people believe them. And you create this air of confusion and just taint the science that's there. And that's what happened very quickly with COVID vaccines. And so from you know, I think thinking back in the very beginning of the pandemic when this virus was something that we didn't really understand and we didn't know how long it was going to last and all those things, that was definitely a scary time as a healthcare provider. And I think I had a lot of hope early on that folks would understand and and have a different level of respect for healthcare providers. But We're all
3: going to come together.
1: Yeah, Yeah. we did for that quick moment and then quickly, (laughs) it quickly dissolved. Uh, And I'm like, okay, now we're back to where, you know, I should have realized we're going to get back to. But yeah, it was very comparable, I think. And, um, for, for for us, I think, and for me specifically in, in Texas, it's just, this was normal to me, right? What I saw around me was like, oh, I thought the rest of the country was like this too. And then I'd hear from my colleagues in New York or wherever they were. And, and it's like, wait, everyone's masking? Every, like, yeah. you have that high of a vaccination rate? Like, what? And so <laughs> I think our, our viewpoints were just very different. Or, or, you know, what we saw around us was just very
3: different. In the communities that you serve, well, it's kind of a two-part question. Like, what, what is driving that hesitancy? It, it's not so much cultural stigma as disinformation, right? Because there is not a stigma around vaccines or is there?
1: Well, I think some people have a stigma around, especially now, given what's transpired over the last few years and yeah. and what they believe to be true. And mm-hmm. I think it depends on which communities that we're talking about. Certainly the folks that are vaccine hesitant are not homogenous and, and one group of people, right? Sure. They all have different concerns. Some of them are rooted in disinformation and, and perhaps a mistrust of the government or something that's more political leaning. And then there's another contingency of folks that are just distrustful of healthcare providers and science. And that's rooted in a history of abuse, uh, especially among folks of color. And, you know, it's very valid. And I, and I totally understand that. And even when I'm talking to patients about vaccines and they're hesitant, you have to meet them where they are. And I never, you know, project my feelings or presume that they're going to believe what I believe by the end of the conversation. It's really just having a fact-sharing conversation, respecting their choices uh, and opinions, even though it can be very difficult for me sometimes. And taking care of people, that gets me further than judgment and you know being negative and trying to get them to where I want them to be because it's not about that. And so there's a mixture of things that I think make folks hesitant. But I think when, what I found is when I do open the door and I am more understanding, folks will come back with more questions and folks will come back with, you know, different things that they've heard and, and feel like they can engage in a different way. And oftentimes they do get to where I hope they get to, which is doing the best thing that's for them and their health and their family's health. I love that
3: idea of of just
1: meeting them where they are and
3: kind of not being declarative. I mean, being firm in the facts, but kind of, leaving the door open,
1: knowing that you're a trusted source for questions. Yeah, absolutely. And and I've learned that with providing abortion care for so long. Yeah, and yeah, that's sure. the same thing yeah. I do with that, right? It's like, I don't want you to be where I am. I'm very pro-abortion. I've been doing this work for a long time. Yeah. I'm rooted in it in a different way. But even family members that I respect and, and know very well can sometimes be like, oh, you're doing that? And listen, if you want to talk, I'm open to talk. I can share patient stories with you. I can tell you why I do the work and it takes time and it's little bits. And oftentimes people will come back and say, hey, thank you for having that conversation or, hey, my friend actually needs some help. Can you help them? You know, and so just keeping the door open and it requires a lot of patience and a lot of meditation on my part, but it's definitely (laughs) worth it because, you know, again, people mean well and, and I think a lot of times, whether it's COVID vaccines or abortion they just don't know where to go to have those honest conversations and and, and say the things that they might feel uncomfortable saying in other spaces yeah. because of judgment.
2: And building on that, so you are, you're a doctor, you're in a place of authority. Many of us who are vaccinated and completely understand the benefits of it end up in conversations like this, especially I think this time of year when we're seeing family and as Raman mentioned, right, whether it's immigrant communities or it's just different beliefs, not everybody around us is going to share the same opinion and not even just about vaccines, about like how the gravy tastes and what we should be eating for Thanksgiving, right? It's just like family dynamics. What are some other tips you could give just to regular lay people like us of, if we wanted to encourage the people we love to keep themselves safe in this way, how should we approach that?
3: You should invite Dr. Bobic over for Thanksgiving dinner. Clearly. That's what you should do. Yes. Be like, "Hey mom, do. I'm not a
2: doctor, but I invited one for dinner."
1: <laughs> I'm happy to come to anybody's dinner table and 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 uh, share food. I you know, my recommendation is always to start with shared values. Yeah. And w- what is it that brings you there? I'm hoping folks aren't subjecting themselves to a totally toxic you know, situation. I, I'm sure many of us have toxic moments with family and friends, which is understandable, but there's got to be something there that we can respect with each other, right? Whether it's just the way we grew up or health or well being, or caring for each other. And that's the place to start. Even if it's the smallest little thing, start there. And when things do get heated, when things are going left, come back to that place. And again, it's not going to be this Thanksgiving, we're going to, you know, accomplish this goal. It's going to be over and over and over again with, with many people where you have to have that conversation and build on it and go back to those shared values. And sometimes you may not get to where you want to get. It's, you know, the journey, the journey can look very different and it can have ups and downs. But I think over time, if you stick to those shared values and assuming you have shared values, if you don't, then maybe that's a person you don't want to engage with, which is fine too. There's going to be, there's going to be a group of folks that are going to be very, very opposite and don't have shared values and that's okay. They exist and you exist, right? Mm-hmm. But there's some folks where there, there is some common ground and and just to focus on that and, and center that as much as you can.
2: Yeah, I love that idea. I think I feel like another great tactic, especially around families is babies, right? So if there's mm-hmm. like, I mean, in my family, my sister just had a child and he's a little over a year old and Raman also has someone, His his youngest is about that age. And I think- when you start to point out things like that, like, hey, if you're going to come over and we've got, you know, so-and-so's coming over too, or hey, we have someone who's under a certain age or even older audiences. Like we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with Rem and Sister, who's a geriatric provider, uh, healthcare provider. If you have folks in your family that are part of these vulnerable communities, it's almost like as a family, you're getting you're getting together and you are also keeping each other safe, yes. right? And so that gives you a shared values and also a a bigger purpose, I would think, than just keeping yourself safe. Absolutely. People love babies and grandmas.
3: Yeah, yeah. So. babies and
2: grandmas. And pets, right? And pets. <laughs> and pets.
3: <laughs> what I, I have to ask, I mean, just in your own, like, for the holidays, you know, as you're gathering with your family, kind of how is that dynamic playing out? What, what are the conversations you're having? Because, again, it's... Uh, it, it's it's funny conversations with friends in the South, while they might kind of be of my kind of political and belief leanings, they are surrounded by friends and family that are not. So they're the needles that they are having to thread over the holidays are a little more fraught than mine. Like, what is the plan? How are you navigating in your own personal life?
1: Well, so <laughs> I think for me personally. Given that I'm a brown gay man providing abortion care and trans care (laughs) in in Texas, (laughs) I've selected like everybody
3: in Texas, right? (laughs) That's everybody Uh, in Texas.
1: I've selected a group of people that I, uh, that are my friends and some family members as well, that it's very easy to be around and they know all Mm -hmm. of what I do and who I am. Mm -hmm. And so I, in my personal spaces, especially during the holidays, do not want to have. Any walls up, or have to tiptoe around anybody's right. discomfort yeah. of who I am or yeah. what I do. Yeah. So I've curated a group of people that are very comfortable with it, and it's my time to like you know let my hair down and just yeah. relax and yeah. not have to worry about those things. But we do have a hard time like finding other folks that are like minded in the same way. And you know, of course, in the bigger cities, it's a little bit easier than in other parts of Texas. But I do a lot of work out in my day job trying to have these conversations and have that patience that it's exhausting. (laughs) And so having some space where I can just be myself and not have to worry about those things is... is Well, no,
3: but it's more of a logistics question. So, you know, I started a new job. You know, I spent the last couple of years doing a lot of remote work and consulting. And several months ago, I had to start, you know, commuting back into the city in an office unmasked with a lot of people. And my wife and I had to have these kind of really interesting conversations. I was starting a new job and it was like, okay, well, Obviously, I was really happy to know that my job wanted, you know, proof of vaccination. It was something I had to prove. So I felt comfortable going in. But then, you know, do you wear the mask on the train and all those? So I guess the the question is more like around the logistics of gathering. Are you like checking with your friends to make sure they've gotten their latest vaccine? Are you masking at the bar, but not at at the house? Like, it's not even what the answers to those questions are. It's like, how do you thread the needle of (laughs) <laughs> the negotiation of the logistics in this new world. We're in.
1: Yeah, for sure. I, th- I mean, I, th- I think the best place to always start is with yourself, right? What is your requirements? What is the absolute must? What are the places where you may have a little room, wiggle room, whether it's, you know, how many people inside or outside? And then what are your like hard stops? And, and, and knowing some of those things are important. And communicating those things, right? If there's a hard stop of like, I can't be around a group of more than six people, then that's a hard stop and and you let folks know. If it's about work and it's keeping yourself safe, it's like, well, I'm going to wear a mask the whole time. Are folks okay with that? Then make sure you communicate that and and have those needs met. And some of these things are evolving. Some of them can be seasonal as well, especially as we go into winter season where it's more likely that we're going to see more COVID cases, more flu cases folks may be more concerned, holidays, right, where there's more gatherings. And so I think being comfortable with your hard stops and and what you require or your family requires is important. Um, and knowing where there's a little bit of room for negotiation.
0: Yeah.
3: Something I saw at a conference that my, my company went to, and one of our salespeople took a picture of it, is this idea of your badge had different colors. Like, what are you comfortable with? Am I comfortable with yeah. like, hugs, fist bumps, mm-hmm. handshakes? And I thought that was so interesting, like this we're in a new normal, and we're all having to adapt that really over communicating and asking what people are comfortable with, we have to express a little bit more empathy.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. I think that's important. And then, you know, I've also noticed some folks are, there's either assumptions, or uh they're afraid to ask, right? Well, of course, everyone's been vaccinated, or, or, or you know, I, I did not want to ask, I thought that was rude. And, you know, this is about our safety and, and well, well-being and, and also our comfort. So it's okay to ask those questions and it's okay. And even ask permission if you feel uncomfortable asking the question. It's okay if, if we ask that. Um, would you feel comfortable letting me know or would, you know, uh, however you want to navigate that, but those things are okay to ask and, and to know, especially if folks are in your home or you're sharing space with them and it's about your health. Um, it's important to know those things if, if that means you're going to be safer.
2: That's a great point. I think in this new environment, being that overt is necessary, you know, and and cute ways to do it is like those badges. I actually went to a conference to a where I saw something similar and it was color codes and I just got confused. I ended up just shaking everybody's hands. Just hug, hugging everybody. <laughs> you just went in for like the New York style kind of, double cheek yeah, kiss. Just, yeah, yeah, exactly. Give them a pound, give them a hug, give him a handshake, give him a kiss, mm-hmm. the whole thing. They just got everything.
3: Running <laughs> running, chest bumps. That's what I'm bringing <laughs>
2: back. Yeah, And I think. I think one of the things that is also very interesting because I fall into this bucket is people feel that if they've been, let's say, double vaxxed already, they're good, right? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, when we think about things like the flu vaccine, where every year most most people usually renew that or re up on that, and they they make sure to get that every year, and there's something about the COVID vaccine that I think there's like a there's a certain segment of people that just believe, well, I I did the two or I did the three, like whatever that initial series was and I'm okay now, and I don't need to get another one. What are your thoughts on that, and how do we, you know, is is there anything, any tips, any kind of... Yeah, um, what are you recommending to your family and friends, yeah. Dr. Mm-hmm. Bobby?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's important that folks get the vaccines that are recommended for them. Mm-hmm. Of course, everyone has different health uh, mm-hmm. things that they might be considering, and uh, folks at different ages have different considerations. And so it's important to know the science. First of all, that vaccines are safe <laughs> and effective. COVID is also evolving. And so things are changing with time and, and can be confusing for some people, especially if they're not keeping up with it. But talk to your healthcare provider, um, whether it's your primary care doctor or even your pharmacist has a lot of information on COVID vaccines these days. So get the information. And if a vaccine's available and you qualify for it, get it. So that way you can protect yourself and those you love.
3: That's great. Well, Dr. Bavik, it this has been a lot of fun, just kind of covering a range of topics. I think something I want to come back to, and it's kind of rooted just in your approach of who you are today, not just as a healthcare provider but as a person. But if you could like go all the way back to England, Mississippi, Texas, your choice, but talk to that young man who was interested in you know the U.S. Postal Service or Mm-hmm. or actually it wasn't the U.S. Postal Service, uh, the Royal, the yeah. Royal Mail Service or <laughs> or a potential ballerina future. If, if you could tell that young man something, what would you tell him?
1: Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> I would probably go back and just let him know he's going to do great things and things are going to be okay.
2: That's kind of exactly what you ended up doing, right? <laughs> really great things and you ended up being okay. That's very simple advice, but very truthful.
1: Yep. And I think that would have helped me so much to hear that uh, for my future self. Um, it's so simple, but so meaningful to me.
2: Yeah. Well, we are at the point of our conversation where we put all of our guests into a speed round as we right before we wrap up. So Dr. Bavik, are you ready for speed round?
3: Okay, I guess yeah. <laughs> the hesitation is key. Yes, like, you know, you yeah, I up, we'll the I guess part exactly.
2: Round. Yeah, I guess is a good. It's a good. It's a good little buffer there. I like that. What is one thing about you that no one expects?
1: Oh gosh, this is a speed round. Right, it's gonna take me a second to think. Um, I don't know. I have no idea what they don't expect. Oh, I think probably my music choice.
3: Ooh. Oh, you yeah. have
1: to. You have to unpack. Yeah. That. So unpack what is that? That. I, <laughs> I do uh, listen to country music sometimes, and it's sort of like that '90s country music, not like current pop country music. But we used to only get CMT, the Country Music Television network, mm-hmm. yeah. and so that's what we would watch rather than MTV. And so I have this connection to like '90s country music,
3: so like Garth Brooks, Shania Twain, that Shania kind of-
1: Twain, yeah, um, Tim McGraw, oh yeah. Uh,
3: okay.
2: yeah, yeah,
1: that kind of era of music, yeah, <laughs> Leanne Rhymes. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Is there a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to?
1: Um, I don't watch a lot of movies because I don't have the attention span for like (laughs) two or three (laughs) hours. I usually fall asleep. I'm a Capricorn, so I think like, what else could I be doing with my time or what else could I be doing during this movie? I think there's several books. I really liked Middlesex, even though I don't identify with the characters. I really like the way that book was written. And then there's a couple of others that are not coming to my mind right now. Um, but Middlesex book. is a good one yeah isn't it
2: yeah like I forgot about that book wow oh
1: you know the other one uh that I really like is it's called she's come undone mm-hmm. and I <laughs> my sister used to read books as part of the Oprah book club and I would read them <laughs> so I was, I was like if she's reading them they've <laughs> got to be cool and that was one of the books
2: that's great too what is your favorite mom dish
1: Oh, my mom makes a lot of good uh, Gujarati food. So whatever she cooks uh, is really good. She makes khichri, which is like rice with um, some sort of lentil or something like that. And that's always been my favorite. And she makes this eggplant dish, which is like my go-to comfort food.
2: Nice. Yum.
3: I think Sharon's starting to learn the magic of khichri. I right? am. Yeah, not uh-huh. the first Gujarati guest who has <laughs> mentioned yes. that, So
2: I actually, I demanded mom's recipe for kitchare from our other guests. So if you want to, if you want to submit yours too, I will, will, I'll compare, I'll compare the two and, uh, experiment with both and see which one turns out better.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Let me know, please. Yeah. What's your least favorite food? Oh, you know, I don't like anything that's sour, uh, or I don't like a lot of things that are sour or pickled. Okay. Mm -hmm. So pickles, mustard, anything in that sort of range of, of taste is not my go-to or favorite.
3: So with Indian food, you don't do a char then?
1: I don't. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm.
2: How do you feel about lemonade?
1: So so. I mean, I, just the word lemonade gives me a little acid reflux.
2: <laughs> no way.
1: Yeah, I'm not a wow. big fan. Yeah, maybe I some thought lemonade. we were gonna be friends. I, yeah. I thought
3: we were gonna be friends.
1: It's yeah, It's, it's uh, maybe it's just my body. It's just I don't. <laughs> I don't agree with it. You're you're so, you're so sweet. You can't be sour.
2: <laughs> exactly. Is. Who is someone out there that you'd want to talk to on a podcast besides us, of course?
1: I would love to talk to Loretta Ross, who runs um, Sister SisterSong, uh, which is a nonprofit in Atlanta. I there's probably other folks. Say,
3: say more because I'm not. Yeah. Heard of oh, School. okay.
1: So they are a reproductive justice rooted organization. Uh, they do a lot of great work. She also was one of the founders of reproductive justice, and I've shared some space with Loretta, but I haven't actually had a conversation. And it would be really nice to have that kind of conversation to talk about where our, you know, work has aligned and been similar. And I think there's just so much that I could learn from her. And so having a time or even an hour, uh, you know, dedicated to just a conversation would be amazing.
3: That's awesome. What does being a modern minority mean for you?
1: For me, the words that come to mind are like intersectional and complexity, but also there's community there. And you know, I, I think for a lot of things, when when I think about modern minority, there's just not a template. There's not generations that have done the same thing over and over again, and you know exactly what the path ahead looks like. But it's it's again, it's complex. There's intersectional identities, especially for those of us that are have some immigrant past or are immigrants ourselves, where there's mixture of different things. And I think there's complexity, but there's so much beauty in all of that. And there's also a community of us. There's whether we're from different countries or speak different languages, there's shared experiences, and there's so much beauty in that community as well.
2: That's a great answer. Dr. Bavik, thank you so much for spending this time with us. we We appreciate you, not just for your time, but everything that you're doing for the Houston community. i'm I'm personally, I feel really honored that our paths cross in this way and that we are able to share your voice and your perspectives, especially at this time that we're at in our society. So thank you so, so much for, for your time today.
1: Great. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun.
2: And that's our show.
3: Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform.
2: Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three.
3: Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, Hi mom at modmypod.com.
2: You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you.
3: That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel,
2: And I'm still Sharon Lee Toney.
3: Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
2: We'll talk to you soon.